Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Edwin Murillo, Associate Professor in Spanish at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And we are discussing his book, Latin America and Existentialism, A Pan-American Literary History. And uh, Dr. Murillo, wonderful to have you on today. Good afternoon, PJ. I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm quite honored, actually, to be here. So thank you so much. Uh, so the, generally, the first question I ask is, why this book? So what led you to start this as, as a project? Um, fascinating question. I, I, I do get asked that question a lot. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the book began you know, well over 10 years ago um, out of just sheer curiosity. Um, existentialism is a uh, cultural phenomenon. Uh, we see it to this very day. And we see its footprints in film, in uh, sculptures, even in music. And of course, we still see it in uh, literature and in philosophy. Um, so while I was pondering this idea, um, I, I was also curious as to, well, since, since we look at existentialism as a global phenomenon, uh, being a Latin Americanist in terms of my field of study, question naturally popped up, well, where is Latin America in this global phenomena question? Where, where are we? Um, and when I began to research it, uh, you know, it turns out that, of course, existentialism was really important in Latin America. And most of the philosophical and literary historians from like the 1930s and forward um, began to document the, the footsteps of existentialism. Um, and they always seemed to begin with Latin America appearing in the 1950s or 1960s. In other words, always after the initial euphoria of existentialism in Europe. Um, but then I remember having read a book by a Colombian uh, poet, author, uh, Jose Asuncion Silva from the late 19th century. And when I went back to the novel, I realized that there were several passages. The novel is set up as a diary. There were several entries that are absolutely Nietzschean in, at their core. And of course, this was written in 1896. So I began to think of Latin America and existentialism as not a afterthought or as subsequent to um, the European boom of the 1940s, but as participating in the very beginning stages of existentialism, if we're going to think of it that way. Um, and then the, the other question naturally was, since existentialism is mostly known as a philosophical and a literary phenomenon, I was like, well, where are Latin American philosophers in all this conversation? And of course, I started to visit some of the important figures um, from the late 19th, early 20th century, 
from Brazil, like Farias Brito, from uh, Colombia, Fernando eh, Gonzalez Ochoa, from Mexico, Samuel Ramos, from Argentina, different philosophical voices from Argentina. And I, I found them all to be dealing with very existentially huge questions. Um, you know, the great questions of humanity. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What happens after? <laughs> and these, these are all, you know, philosophical voices dealing with what would later be really categorized as existentialism. But since they're writing at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, um, I feel like maybe they had been forgotten from when existentialism became, you know, canonized. They were just not included in the conversation. Um, so all that is to say that that's how I came about this. Um, I, I started to look at existentialism before the 1940s, and I found that Latin America participated in many ways, even if they weren't using the actual word existentialism or, or, or the rubric of existentialism. Um, Latin Americanists have been there from, from the very beginning. So I, I think it's just to set this up. Um, how would you define uh, existentialism? I realize that's not an uncontroversial question. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, um, and and I, I I take care to to dedicate several pages of my book in the introduction to um, providing definitions of existentialism. Um, and uh, of course, and, and we, you actually brought him up a little earlier, uh, Dr. Uh, Lewis Gordon, who's been on your podcast a couple of times. I, I absolutely rely on standing on the shoulders of giants. So I look at what other historian, philosophical historians have done, and I, and I provide those definitions. Um, because as you mentioned, it, it's quite controversial. I look at Kevin Ajo, I look at uh, Lewis Gordon, I, I look to William McBride and George Kotkin and uh, Stephen uh, Crowell. Uh, and I look at, of course, the Latin Americanists that I mentioned earlier who worked in the 1940s and 50s, um, who also provide quite you know, detailed uh, definitions of existentialism. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, you know, I, I think I, I'll just refer to Jean-Paul Sartre, right? One of the... Uh, patron saints of existentialism. Um, it's this, this notion that um, existence precedes essence and the jumping point is that if in fact, you know, humanity is not predestined to uh, any one outcome, what does that mean for humans, for humanity as a whole, that we have been gifted all this freedom and responsibility. Um, and then that points to the importance of choice. Uh, what, do, what does humanity do with the choices that we must make throughout our life that will determine our history? Um, the great Spanish philosopher uh, Ortega Gasset, and of course I'm paraphrasing here, um, uh, explains that you know, man has no essence. What he has is his history. Uh, Don Quixote, and here again, uh, you know, 
I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, Don Quixote, the, the character of the Miguel de Unamuno novel, um, tells his squire, Sancho Panza, that man is the son of his choices, right? Um, he becomes the son of the choices that he makes. Um, and, and I believe that most of the, or all of the figures that I look at in, in my book uh, have to reckon with that freedom, uh, that responsibility of having to choose or not what to do uh, within a universe, within an existence that is uh, absolutely indifferent to us um, and uh, unsympathetic, 100% uh, unsympathetic. And once these personalities, these characters realize that they are orphaned uh, in the sense of there's not this metaphysical, ethical being looking over us, uh, once they realize or come to the realization that they are orphaned, what do they do with that solitude? Um, some of the characters reject it completely and fall into what, you know, Sartre called bad faith. Uh, they, they reject that reality of, of being the, the owners of their own present and future uh, and start to find excuses for everything that's happening to them. Uh, and then there's other characters that thrive in that solitude and decide that they are going to be the, uh, the creators of their own ethics and decide to really enjoy the earthly. And I'm thinking particularly of the character in Jose Asuncion Silva's novel, Jose Fernandez, who, uh, who is ill throughout most of the novel and he's he's ill because his life projects don't provide the contentment and the authentic um, fulfillment that he's looking for and it's because he's trying to find happiness within a judeo-christian society that is quite restrictive in terms of morality so when he comes to that realization and he and he disassociates himself from that and he just gives in to all his earthly pleasure delights, he, uh, he finds a sense of uh, contentment that he hadn't been able to find through um, chasing ideal love or following what his society thought a man of his stature should do. He literally starts to create his own life project based on his own parameters of what will make him feel content. And at that moment, uh, he actually is released from that sense of anguish and, and that illness that he, that's been dogging him throughout the novel. Of course, what is somewhat uh, paradoxical is that the character, right, um, finds an authentic sense of being, but the author himself commits suicide in 1896. So it's as if he wrote an avatar that could live on in the way he wished he could, but the weight of social expectation for Asuncion Silva was too much, and he committed suicide. Now, you've mentioned a little bit, and it seems to be a big part of the project, even as you read the intro, uh, where does this exclusion come from, right? When we talk about uh, 
the history of existentialism in Latin America, at least in Anglo studies, uh, coming uh, starting in the 50s and 60s and ignoring or forgetting a, a large chunk. Why do you think that exclusion happens? That's a great question, PJ. And, and not to be, uh, not, not to, to, to criticize, you know, the North American Academy too much. I mentioned earlier that our own literary philosophical historians in Latin America and in Spain, we did that as well. We just mm. assumed that existentialism in Latin America was mimetic, a copy, and absolutely subordinated to the European Academy. So we did it ourselves. Um, the very first historians I ever read in Spanish, publishing in the 40s and 50s, did this themselves. Um, I think that... Um, that I, I, I believe that it's just a, uh, a, a almost knee-jerk reaction to just about anything that comes out of Latin America, a, um, a subsequent complex uh, that is just almost built into uh, how Latin America is viewed. Um, and again, we, we in Latin America, have also contributed to this mythology of always being subsequent um, and always maybe being peripheral. Now, and I've thought about it this way as well. I mean, yes, maybe, you know, Latin America is peripheral, right, of the quote unquote first world of Western civilization, um, but peripheral as in we are within <laughs> the imaginary mm. circle of what Western civilization, the first world might be, but within it. Um, which means we're participating uh, in, in all cultural means, in all cultural production means. I mean, anything that, that you might think of as a first world phenomenon, um, of course, Latin America has to be in the discussion. Uh, just the same way the United States is. I mean, we were, we were all colonies of the European powers and naturally there is going to be a dialogue. However, thinking of the United States as subsequent has never really been an issue because, you know, the United States is the center of the universe. Um, so that, that we've never really had that problem here. However, Latin America, uh, it, it has been a mythology of always afterwards, always uh, subjected or subservient to whatever the global phenomena might be. Latin America will eventually bring up the rear. Um, well, this book, I think, addresses that mythology, at least when it comes to existentialism. Um, we're right there. Uh, we're right there. If, if, uh, if we think of existentialism and how historians have typically uh, formulated the, can the canon, they look to the middle of the 19th century as a starting point. You know, they look to Kierkegaard, they look to Dostoevsky, they look to Nietzsche, uh, Schopenhauer. So that's where I started as well. I started in the middle of the 19th century, and that's why I was able to stumble upon, you know, the Brazilian Machado de Assis. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Colombian uh, José Tito Silva that I just discussed previously. Um, and again, the reason why I'm able to do this is because Latin America is part of the first world. However you want to define the first world, um, 
Yes, they're certainly part of the Western world. Absolutely. You know, we're contributing members. We're part of the club. Um, How could we not be? You know, Uh, we speak European languages. You know, we speak French. We speak Spanish. We speak Portuguese. Um, So we are part of the conversation. Um, So um, I, I hope that answers the question. I think I think we have just always assumed a subsequence to everything in Latin America. Uh, and I, I, it doesn't hold when you actually look at cultural production critically and historically, the, that subsequence doesn't hold. Yeah. Um, and we had started to talk about this beforehand, but I think it, it kind of, as we talk about definition and exclusion, uh, you gave a really fascinating example and then started moving on uh, about identity and performa- uh, performativity that you teach in Tennessee, and you noticed that students tried to hide their Southern accent, but then it would come out when they went home. Can you talk a little bit about that? One, I love the story, but also uh, what that shows and how that plays into this larger dynamic that we see about these myths we create for ourselves. Absolutely, and um, that was a really interesting conversation, right? Um, a lot of the, the, uh, the themes that have been associated with existentialism deal with you know finding purpose in life deal with the uh the importance of other people or facticity in our day-to-day existence um deal with uh finding projects in our life that you know fill us with an authentic sense of purpose uh one of the fascinating conversations that existentialists had and we were discussing Jean-Paul Sartre but um, the Mexican philosopher Samuel Ramos uh, did something very similarly, is the idea of um, who we are in terms of our identity and how we perform certain roles depending on the context, the situation, and what is needed in the moment. Um, Sartre, of course, talks about, uses the great example of the waiter, right? That man isn't essentially a waiter. He's performing the role of the waiter. Uh, Samuel Ramos talks about masks, we wear masks as our persona. And he was pointing to the fact that we construct the mask. So we add and subtract things from this identity, which again points to the fact that humanity really is free and we are purposefully creating this identity. And Samuel Ramos talks about, you know, how these identities, these masks get us through, you know, particular situations, but they're also eternally evolving. So the mask that Edwin Murillo wore 20 years ago is absolutely different from the mask that I'm wearing right this second as a professor uh, who specializes in Latin American existentialism. And the point that, that, that we were talking about, which is really interesting, is that you know, the existentialists have and are still talking about these identities and these performances and how we see that in the real world, how we see it manifest in the real world the anecdote that I brought was in our class, in the class I teach, I teach a course on Latin American, uh, intro to Latin American studies, which discusses, of course, cultural identity, history, literature, philosophy, et cetera. And uh, in, at one of these classes, we were talking about how, you know, when we self-identify as U.S. Americans or as Latin Americans or as Hispanics, uh, and as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a professor at UTC in Tennessee, when, when we were discussing, you know, cultural identities, uh, we also start to discuss, well, how do you self-identify? And most of my students identify as 
Southerners or Tennesseans. And, uh, and then we talk about also how, depending on where we are, these students have their own masks. Because I, I noticed, uh, you know, just this is just anecdotal and in the conversations that pop up in class sometimes. Uh, I remember a student uh, that I, I did not immediately recognize as being Southern because they had this sort of journalistic English, right? It's no accent. And I'm like, where are you from? And then they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm from the South. And I'm like, huh. I'm like, well, you don't sound Southern. And they, they talked about how for job interviews or for internship interviews or when they're working, they go into a neutral English because um, it makes them feel more comfortable because of naturally the, the negative stereotypes that are sometimes associated with that accent. Um, and I think that pointed to, to one of these really interesting existential points of performativity, identity, how do we construct those identities and how do we choose to evolve from them? Um, and then they, they let me know that, you know, well, depending on who they're talking to, that Southern accent actually does pop up. And it's also for the purposes of identifying with a community. So when they're with, you know, their family or with people they feel closest to, they will fall back into that Southern accent to feel closer to that community uh, that they're in. But when they're in like in an academic setting or a professional setting, they might fall more into the, you know, accepted standard, you know, journalistic English. Um, so I think it's really fascinating, you know, because again, this is something that the existentialists were talking about, performativity. and how we deal with it in the 21st century. Yeah, I uh, so my dad was born in Massachusetts. I was born in Connecticut. My mom was born in Florida and my wife was born in Alabama. So there's always been like this probably, you know. How very American. And, yes, yes. Like the, the Yankee boy coming down and getting the Southern Belle. That's been a, a reoccurring narrative in my family's history. But what's funny is that Neither my mom nor my wife, people don't think of them as having Southern accents until they start talking to their family. So when you mentioned that, I was like, I have literally seen this in action. And, you know, we made fun of it because we're New Englanders. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's the default response. Like, like where did the, the y'all and the ain'ts all of a sudden pop up from? But it, it, it comes from, you know, fitting into these different communities. And as I've lived longer in Central Florida, um, for one, I think y'all as a second person plural is really useful, but also I do find myself slipping into it, right? Like, it's like, it, you just, it's a natural thing. Um, and so and it's, a, that's, it's a form uh, of solidarity as well. Yeah. Right? Like, right. You know, you want to form part of that group and, and to your point in Florida, um, you know, second, third and fourth generation Cuban Americans, their English is native. But it's very like their English, that Hispanic English is very different from the Hispanic English in like Los Angeles or yeah. the Hispanic English in the Northeast, right? Like New Yorkers, um, those Hispanic Americans sound completely different from the Hispanic Americans you'll meet in Miami. Well, that's that is if you actually hear some English in Miami, right? Because <laughs> Miami is part of Latin America. It just happens to be, you know, in Dade County, which I'm very happy for. Um, but, you know, it speaks to these identities that we produce and when we use them and, and how we construct that mask and the choices we make in that construction. Who am I today? And 
my choice today was to wear this, you know, this blazer with this shirt and this, you know, pocket square, um, and, and to try and standardize my English as much as possible, which, you know, cause PJ, you don't sound like you're from the Northeast and I grew up in Texas, so I don't have right. that, you know, that, that drawl <laughs> and, right, and right. It's particularly for this purpose, um, that we, you know, that we, that we are here presenting this way. So. Yeah, and no, I, I've definitely issues. gotten. I've definitely gotten that. Uh, you know, you have no accent type of thing. Like I have the, uh, what is it, the standard Midwest. Um, I actually lived for a long time in the Midwest, and it has definitely proved useful at times, right? Like that—that that is the journalistic um, tone, uh, the journalistic dialect. Uh, I actually, as you're talking about Miami, and as. Uh, the Hispanic uh, population continues to grow. Um, I homeschool uh, two of my boys and we hit Spanish very hard in large part because but there's that solidarity aspect, right? Like um, it, you should be able to talk to your neighbors. Um, but what th this is a little bit of an off the wall question, but I, as you're talking about colonization, um, it kind of struck me that I, I'm just, this is a gap in my knowledge. Uh, I'm very familiar with the literary and uh, language ties between uh, England and America. What are the, I see that, you know, your book is part of the uh, Iberian and Latin American studies. What are the ties like between Spain and Portugal um, from a, a language and literary standpoint, uh, other than that, like, obviously the language is shared, but when you talk about the world of letters, and the literary influences back and forth. What is that like uh, from this, from the Iberian Peninsula to Latin America? That's a wonderful question. Um, I sometimes get the uh, the notion that um, these ideas of territories uh, are much more a concern for academics than they are for philosophers and for uh, creative writers uh, artists in general. I say that because there has been little to no, let me stress the no, antagonism between Spain and Portugal in terms of a uh, literary philosophical uh, conversation that I can think of. In other words, whenever um, these, these writers are, are actually producing, they're not worried of, of, of looking uh, like a copy of a Spanish writer or a copy of a Portuguese writer. Um, the dialogues have always been open. And of course, in, in the first couple of, you know, centuries of Latin American existence, uh, the influence was much more Spain, Portugal to the colonies. Uh, but turn of the eight, uh, 19th century forward, uh, the, the dialogue has been free flowing. Uh, most of the more, most important uh, literary philosophical figures in Latin America uh, studied in Europe. And during uh, social unrest, and I'm thinking of like the Spanish Civil War, many progressive thinkers found refuge in Latin America. So that antagonism of like, oh, I'm better because I'm Spanish than you are because you're Colombian or I'm better because I'm Colombian. Because in terms of art, artistic production, hasn't been there. 
Um, there hasn't been the, um, and I'm, I guess I'm going to be quoting uh, Harold Bloom here, the anxiety of influence, not an issue, uh, in my opinion, when it comes to artists. Um, most of, and I'm thinking of uh, Jose Asuncion Silva, uh, he, he quotes and references, uh, you know, writers that are thought of as universal freely in all of his work. Um, Machado de Assis, the Brazilian, uh, can't stop referencing Shakespeare as one of his, you know, literary masters, nor can he stop referencing uh, Blase Pascal, the, uh, the French <laughs> philosopher. Um, so th th there's that, there isn't that, that fear of, of not being taken, uh, you know, seriously, I, I feel. They... They understand that you know uh, art is a is a universal domain, and um, so to, to your question, it's like the the flow of ideas is perpetual and mutually beneficial. You know, this reminds me a lot. I had a scholar on to talk about Chinese history. And she talked about how the emperor, in order to enforce his language, required that all requests to the court that were written had to be 100% grammatically correct and would himself take a red pen and mark it what was wrong and send it back. And of course, this took like, you know, sending a letter back and forth was not easy and it would take a considerable amount of time. So if you screwed up, your request would be denied until you got it fixed. Um, and it does seem that some of that anxiety of influence uh, is a, uh, and, and maybe I'm jumping too far here, but it seems like it, it could be connected in a lot of ways to um, imperial ambitions, right? Like this idea of like, well, I need to be the one who's generating, I can't accept help, I have to be generating, you know, I have to be generating culture because we are, we are the power. Um, would you think that's a, a fair way to talk about it? Um, I, I do, PJ. I, I don't, I am not in any way, shape or form discounting uh, the importance of like post-colonial thinking, post-colonial studies. I am in no way, shape or form uh, discounting the importance of studying uh, Native American cultures, languages, civilizations, uh, and maybe a finer point would be like the attempted erasure of Native American traditions. And when it comes to Latin America, like Afro descendant, Afro diasporic traditions, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that um, we should not essentialize Latin American production as only being authentic if we talk about Native American issues. We should not right. essentialize Latin American topics as being authentic only if we discuss the atrocities of, you know, slavery. Um, what I'm saying is that. It, it is all part of the greater discussion of Latin American cultural studies, literary studies, philosophical studies, and that uh, these are all indispensable parts of foundational parts of who we are, our history, uh, our, our cultural identities, um, the diversity of our cultural identities. Uh, but we, sh in my opinion, when it comes to academic approaches, we should not essentialize Latin America as only this one thing, just like we should not essentialize Latin America as always subsequent or, you know, subservient to European masters. 
um, we should not also, you know, make Latin American studies in any field, in any uh, uh, specialty, specialization as, you know, only tethered to Native American issues, Afro-diasporic issues, first world versus, you know, colonial or imperialistic thinking. I think that um, that is short-sighted and would go against really existentialism as a whole, because again, it goes back to the idea of existence precedes essence, meaning we don't really have essence. We have to create it and we get to choose what that means. Well, I think the same would hold true for Latin American studies as a whole. Um, we would be able to focus on what is authentically, truly Latin American based on our perspectives. And that, again, that doesn't discount any other approach, but it doesn't essentialize it either. Yeah. And I want to make sure that I actually get to your book. So um, <laughs> one, thank you. So like part of this, uh, you mentioned him earlier. And so can you talk a little bit about uh, Machado uh, Diasis and the art of existential deciphering? Because like, that's that first, that first uh, layer that you kind of get into. And um, it's... Um, you know, I, I love the, uh, I love that kind of as as a way to get into. Um, <laughs> I don't think we'll get through the whole book. I think that that's an impossible goal. But maybe to give people an idea of where that starts, like what what time period are we talking about with uh, Machado Diocese, and uh, what do you mean by uh, existential existential deciphering? Machado Diocese, fascinating uh, historical figure. Um, so where I, where I came up with the idea of deciphering in terms of identity, um, Carlos Fuentes, the great uh, Mexican uh, writer, uh, wrote an article for the LA Times where he, um, he looked at Machado de Assis as one, the greatest Latin American writer of the 19th century, and I agree, um, but also as a interpreter of the Latin American soul. I'm not too sure. I can't remember if he actually uses that expression or I may have just made that up. Um, in either case, um, Carlos Fuentes uh, looked at Machado in that regard. And, and I'm using Machado because that's the traditional Brazilian way of addressing writers. They, they'll, they'll go with their first name or, or they'll just use one name. So it's not that we're on a first name basis. <laughs> He's just <laughs> universally known as Machado. Um, so Machado... Uh, was a journalist. He was the president of the Brazilian Academy of Portuguese, um, wrote novels, short stories, poetry, plays, chronicles. Um, so as you might imagine, you know, his career spanned, you know, 50 plus years, right? He starts publishing in the 1860s and he publishes all the way to the end of his life in like the 1910s. And he publishes, again, everything from like short stories, chronicles, journal, uh, journalistic uh, newspaper articles, poetry, a little bit of theater. Um, and then, of course, he's most known for his novels. And what I think he does and, and what I mean by like, you know, decipher um, of Latin American identity is that he really does become a uh, sort of literary documentarian of um, the hypocrisy of quote-unquote, modern Brazilian, symbolizing Latin American, uh, well-to-do society. He, uh, he depicts well-to-do society, because he is a social climber, um, in 
both its uh, most uh, uncomplimentary, unflattering ways. He, he talks about the hypocrisy of a bureaucratic system that seems to reward incompetence and absolute uh, being unoriginal and how these unoriginal, incompetent individuals seem to shoot up the social ladder while people who have real value and creativity and could offer some substantial contributions seem to always, you know, be met with like just the most difficult circumstances. Um, and in that regards, uh, I think Machado is, is very contemporary and very modern. Um, uh, the jokes are always right. Like, you know, the people who are at the top are absolutely incompetent and we just don't understand what sort of, you know, cosmic realities had to come to being for them to reach those heights while like the really, the really um, valuable people who could really contribute to our society don't seem to ever catch a break. Well, Machado discusses that, right? He also discusses um, how life is a, is a brutal endeavor and how destiny, if there is such a thing, uh, is absolutely absent and indifferent uh, and uh, could care less to the sufferings of humanity. Um, so what, what I do is I discuss a few of his short stories where um, the protagonists begin uh, by trying to be poets and, you know, life is completely indifferent to their suffering. So they contemplate suicide, but they always, always, always at the very end seem to turn away from suicide as an option. And I think that points to the greater message in Machado, uh, which is even though life is brutal and harsh and indifferent and quote unquote unfair, it is absolutely worth living. I think that's the greater message in what Machado does. Um, a few of his uh, characters, um, I'm thinking of one particularly, King Caborbas. He is a street philosopher. He uh, literally, his advice to uh, one of the characters in Machado's book, uh, Brascubas, is to stop whining. And literally, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work from memory here, his advice is, and I quote, savor life. Right. Borbas is, is, which Borbas is this uh, high middle class, uh, you know, pseudo aristocratic individual who has every advantage in life, but still complains. And Borba, Kinka Borbas is literally a street philosopher, right? He's homeless. And when they meet in the street, he's literally like, stop your whining. The universe doesn't care, you know, save her life. And I think that's the greater message in Machado. Um, regardless of circumstance, you know, life is still worth living. Um, and again, I think that that plays out because so many of his poets contemplate suicide, you know, because, you know, they, they can't be with the woman they, they, they want to be with. They can't be with the love of their life. Um, they can't find success at poet as poets. They can't find success in the business world. Um, destiny seems to be against them, but at the last moment, they, they still will choose life. Um, and I think that's the, the, the larger argument in Machado. Um, and I think that plays out in, in our day-to-day -day life as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even as you talk about this, this reminds me quite a bit of uh, Camus, who would come much later than Machado, right? Um, uh, that when you look at the plague, the stranger, this idea of uh, absurd, uh, embracing absurdity, because life is still worth living, even if it is absurd. Um, 
like those themes, I and, and maybe I'm I'm mishearing you, so I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you. But uh, this kind of goes to your point that I mean, this isn't even concurrent. Machado's before Camus, right? Like, uh, and we look at Camus like, oh, he's the ultimate. Uh, you know, he's one of the ultimate existentialist writers. And it's like, well, Machado was writing the same thing decades beforehand. He's arguing similar points, PJ. And uh, thank you for bringing Camus up. I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when you open up the myth of Sisyphus, uh, right at the very beginning, he discusses suicide as the yeah. only truly philosophical question. And of course, Camus is referring to Hamlet, right? Mm. Hamlet from the 1600s. The only real question there is in our life is to be or not to be. Is life itself worth living or should we just end it all well to that very question Camus said absolutely life is worth living we must rebel you know um, if we're going to go down go down swinging uh Dylan Thomas right rage rage against the dying of the light absolute Camus believes that the answer to Hamlet's question is yes we must continue to struggle and Machado makes that very same point, I believe, in all his characters, um, which is why I mentioned earlier that Machado never got tired of referring to Shakespeare and particularly to Hamlet. In fact, Machado is the translator of Hamlet's soliloquy into Portuguese. Oh. And, and, and his ability as a translator, phenomenal, because I, I finally came upon his translation and uh, not only is it you know poetically beautiful to read in portuguese uh, semantically the meaning the nuances are all there so mm -hmm. i mean obviously my child is a genius and it must be nice to be a genius i would not know <laughs> um but uh but yeah he does an amazing job with it but it, it's to your point pj uh camus is talking about you know whether life is worth living or not in the 1940s I believe Mythosisophus is like from 43 or 42 or 43. And Machado is dis discussing these very questions in like 1880. So he does predate him by like 60 years, which is, which is fascinating, I believe. And this is, so I, I've done uh, a lot of uh, reading in alienation, those sorts of things with like Kafka and, you know, the European story to uh, the American story, factories, those sorts of things. Um, the way that people are put into boxes in, um, uh, I won't say postmodern, in modern culture, the way that everyone was kind of uh, forced into these kind of rigid structures and this bureaucracy. And uh, I'm I'm curious, what does alienation how is it similar in Latin America and in, uh, in Iberia and how is it different? Are there, are there similarities? Are there differences? I believe the answer to, to that question is yes, on both counts. Um, if, if you remember Dostoevsky's notes from underground, the, uh, the, the underground man is a middle age bureaucrat. Uh, if you remember Kafka as the metamorphosis, there again, another, you know, maybe not a middle age, but, you know, approaching middle age bureaucrat. Um, 
Machado de Assis does the same thing with several of his characters. They're also middle-aged bureaucrats. Um, Argentine writers like uh, Onetti and Sabato also have protagonists that are middle-aged bureaucrats. It's this sense of um, anonymity and alienation um, that our quote-unquote modern society has created through a very bureaucratic system, which again, the existentialists seem to be pointing to that. Our system creates the very malcontents that we later have to, I guess, deal with, engage. And to your point, like Dostoevsky, um, even Sartre, Sartre's novel, Nausea, the protagonist, Antoine Rocontin, he's not a bureaucrat, but he might be, he's a historian sort of a bureaucracy. I mean, literary <laughs> professors were part of a academic bureaucracy. Um, well, his malcontent, Satra's character, right, is, is because he's writing a history, right? He's, he's working and his, his very, you know, work causes this sense of anguish. Uh, well, these characters in Latin America, I'm thinking of Machado de Asís, I'm thinking of Labrador Ruiz, I'm thinking of Graciliano Ramos's character, the, the last chapter in this book. Uh, he is a, uh, a a bureaucrat in every sense of the word, and he's absolutely dissatisfied with his purposeful purposeful uh, or lack thereof purposeful existence, his meaningless existence, because he is literally reenacting the same meaningless day over and over and over again, and that creates that sense of alienation because it seems like you know the herd. The rest of society is moving on contently, but he can't because he he can't find the quiet in that repetitive existence. It reminds me of uh, the Harold Ramis film uh, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Keeps repeating the same day over and over and over again. And then there's a scene where he's like uh, at a bar with a couple of uh, locals and he talks, he, he confesses to him. He's like, you guys don't understand. I'm, re I'm, I'm repeating the same day and it's driving me crazy. And, and the two, and the two gentlemen that are accompanying, accompanying him in the scene, they're like, well, you just described my life. Uh, and they're talking about like, they literally repeat the same day over and over and over again. Um, and that causes that sense of, you know, disaffection, alienation, anguish, uh, there are, of course, some happy wanderers out there uh, that aren't burdened with consciousness, but the, you know, the Bill Murray character is burdened with that consciousness. The uh, Graciliano Ramos character is burdened with that consciousness, and they can't seem to unburden themselves. It's like they can't go back to a pre-consciousness state. And what do they have to do now that they're realizing that, you know, the minutes are ticking away, life is ticking away. What do I do now? Um, so I don't know. I mean, sometimes some of my students are like, well, is it better just to be blissfully ignorant? And um, I think that points to the Matrix film, right? There's that moment where, right. where <laughs> Neo gets to choose blissful ignorance or the truth. And the truth can be a terrifying reality. And then there's a character in that film who chooses to go back into the matrix. And he's like, no, ignorance is bliss. 
And I'm not too sure that existentialists, generally speaking, make a judgment on that. You know, whether it's better to be conscious or whether it's better to be blissfully unconscious. They don't make a judgment. They just understand that those are two realities. Um, And I am not exactly convinced which is better, nor would I want to pass judgment on it either. Um, I think that would be a choice for every individual. Would you rather not know that you are reliving your own personal Groundhog Day and just be content with that? Or would you rather know that you're reliving the same exact day over and over and over again? And like, is there a greater purpose? I mean, I don't know. I, I, again, I don't, I wouldn't want to rush to judgment. I, I mean, and maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, but it seems to me that's not entirely a choice that people have. It seems more a matter of capacity. Mm. Am I wrong in, in saying that? From a personal perspective? Um, or just what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, <laughs> um, I agree. I think that, um, that, you know, all societies are a form of indoctrination, whether we know it or not, uh, whether we accept it or not. So um, there are... I'm sure, and again, I am speaking in such broad generalizations that I, I ask, I apologize, you know, before I get into this, but um, I, from what I've seen, right, from, from what philosophers have dealt with, you know, in Latin America and what, you know, writers have dealt with in Latin America, I would, I would venture to say that they agree with you as well. There are, you know, individuals that simply could not fathom being orphaned, being free. Um, I think that there is some truth to that character in the matrix. Individuals that given the choice would prefer to be blissfully ignorant. Um, And then there's others who can't, simply cannot. Now, maybe they, what happened is, or which is what happened to me, I I happened upon a, a writer and after reading, let's say Nietzsche, I could not unread him. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, no, what, what now? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, you're, you're probably right. There are individuals that maybe couldn't fathom these concepts and would at the same time reject them um, because it feels safer to be part of the herd. It feels safer. To believe in a Judeo-Christian God, it, it might be safer to have faith. Um, it might feel better to have faith. Um, and here again, I wouldn't pass judgment on it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say, "Well, you know, you're ignoring this other part." I, I don't know if, if that sort of existence isn't better than the existence of being an atheist. Because not all existentialists are atheists. Kierkegaard was absolutely a Christian. Uh, Miguel de Unamuno was absolutely a Christian. They understood life as suffering, but they found solace in belief. Sartre and Camus were atheists. They absolutely saw existence as brutal, indifferent, and suffering. But they found solace in nothingness. They found solace in death. We shall all rest when we're dead. 
Or you have somebody like Pascal, right? Who, who saw life in the universe as absolutely indifferent. And I do believe that Pascal was probably more leaning towards a Christian ideology because he, he wrote, you know, everybody remembers Pascal's wager. It's better to believe in God just in case there is one. So, so I, right. I, I, you know, just in case I'm covering all my bases, why not? So um, I, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I, I do believe that, that it's difficult. It might not be possible for some, um, but I would not venture to say, well, it's better this way or it's better that way. It's better to believe. It's better not to believe. It's better to be conscious of our freedom or it's better not to believe and have faith that there is this greater being watching over us, you know, uh, making sure that the balance of good and evil doesn't tilt more one way or the other. So I, and I, I will confess one, thank you for coming on today. Uh, the confession is like, this is just a gigantic gap in my own education. I don't know a lot about Latin American um, literature. Uh, so I have what is probably a truly painful question for you, <laughs> but, um, what, uh, if you could, for someone who is coming to this sort of, um, uh, to coming to Latin American literature, what are, what would be three great books for them to start with? What would be three great novels for them to, to read? <laughs> okay. So this has been given all the philosophical questions we've been dealing with. This has been without a doubt, the most difficult question. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I knew, I knew that would be, I knew that this is just a totally unfair question. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Apology accepted. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the type of, uh, you know, a professor that, that must be entertained, um, at, uh, while I'm reading or viewing films or what have you, or listening to music. Um, I'm, there, there's certain writers that I, I understand in our own tradition are absolutely important, but are too difficult in my, in my own estimation are too difficult to get through because they're just not entertaining. Literally they're, they're more important than they are quote unquote good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so um, that is to say that, you know, I'm, my, my response is going to be completely biased. I would say, um, you know, when it comes to Latin America, start at the beginning and make it to 2023, right? Um, you, you can't go wrong. But if I had to give you three writers just from Latin America, I don't, um, I'm not going to venture into uh, Spain um, because there'll be other specialists that can do that uh, or Portugal. Um, if I had to, to do Latin America, um, I, and you want actual titles, right? Not writers. Yeah. Well, either one. Yeah. 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 I, I like, I mean, I, I want to know, I, I mean, I would love to dig further into this and, uh, you know, I, I think three, like what are three entertaining, like, I mean, I'm going to be doing this in my free time. So I would entertaining oh. would be useful. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, Hmm. Let's see. Um, I would begin with the conquest. Um, it's indispensable to start there. And I would begin with Bartolomé de las Casas. Um, and if you have to begin anywhere, I would begin with uh, <clears throat> a, uh, his 
his work, which is historical, right? This is a primary text, a short account of the destruction of the Indies. Um, Bartolomé de las Casas is fascinating because he's, he's the first uh, advocate for universal human rights. He fought for the recognition of the Native Americans as humans because they were considered not human. So I would absolutely have to start with Bartolomé's A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies. Um, it's a fascinating account. And what makes it even more fascinating is that it's a history, right? So yeah. it's, it's, it's tragically entertaining. It's fascinating. Then um, I would recommend uh, anything by Machado de Assis. Because uh, uh, Latin America, as you know, is a uh, extremely diverse region. So our two primary languages are Spanish and Portuguese. So I would like you know somebody to read a little bit of Spanish, of course, would be in translation, and then of course Portuguese. Um, Machado de Assis and his uh, 1881 novel, uh, a posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas. Bras Cubas has died and then decides to write his memoirs, which is a fascinating concept for a novel. Um, so I would go there. And then in the 20th century, you know, I only have a hundred years to choose from. Um, oh, no, no big deal at all. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> um, go back to Spanish and go with Gabriel Garcia Marquez's a hundred years of solitude, uh, a fascinating novel, highly entertaining, uh, page turner. I mean, so if I had to do those three, you know, that, that's where I would start. <laughs> I got the colony. I've got the 19th century. I've got the 21st century. Yeah, there. I, yeah, and I again, thank you. I realized that was um, <laughs> that was the hardest question. I, yeah, I know that was that was painful. Uh, and I, but that that's a, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful place where and and hopefully uh, it will generate some start. discussion. Right? People will comment. No, oh, you should have done this. I should have done no, that. Yeah. Like, I know. <laughs> forgive me. You know. Uh, Nothing um, like creating a list to create controversy. That's true. Right, right. I'm, um, just, I'm showing you all my prejudice here. So I, as, I want to be respectful of your time. As we draw to a close here, um, what is one thing that you would leave, um, besides reading one of these three books, uh, what is something that you would leave our audience with to think about um, from an existentialist uh, point of view, from... Uh, or from a Latin American um, point of view, what is something you would leave for them to just kind of chew on and think as they go throughout their week after listening to this episode? Fascinating question. Um, I, I, I guess because I'm a professor and because I am still a language professor, you know, teaching basic Spanish, uh, I consider myself, as most other professors do, a, as a uh, builder of bridges, a builder of community cultural bridges. And beyond my very specific research into existentialism, what I hope, and this is what I close the book with, what I hope that my book does is creates conversations or initiates conversations that are ongoing. I find this to be really important because I happen to be a U.S. Hispanic. And I happen to be uh, working in the United States. And I really try in, 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 in the classroom and with my research to an extent, uh, create a, a, a sense of Pan-America, uh, meaning all the Americas are truly 
what we should be referencing when we say American. Am I an American? Absolutely. I am a U.S. American. I am a Latin American. Uh, and I'm a U.S. Hispanic. So I'm hoping that you know this work here and my work in general uh, helps to create that dialogue because unfortunately, and it's not only true with uh, with the United States, um, there is a, a a continuously growing tribal sentiment in our country, and we're going to see it even more next year. Once election season starts and you're going to see once again, that almost eternally recurrent uh, idea of putting us into groups, creating division. Um, you are not American enough to be in this country or you are not, you know, uh, patriotic enough right? As a Latin American, you should just be an American. And, and I, I hope that when, when people read my work, they, they realize that what we really are is a pan-American reality. And to be Hispanic is to be at the very core of what it means to, to be a U.S. American. Um, and these dialogues, these cultural bridges um, are what's really necessary. Tribalism is absolutely dangerous. Um, and we've seen the effects of that sort of nativist um, ideology, and, and the effects have always been catastrophic. Um, if we can think of Latin America as part of a larger American cultural identity, then I think, you know, in, in this country, we would be more at ease with thinking of Hispanic as being part of the cultural thread of what it means to be a U.S. American. Um, and, and we do it every once in a while. You know, we do it when we're like celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month or when we're celebrating Cinco de Mayo, which is a very U.S. American invention. Right. Cinco de Mayo is U.S. American. It has little to do with Mexico. Um, but we, we've learned to do that with other European descendants. We're all a little Irish St. Patrick's Day. Um, we are all a little German when we're like celebrating Oktoberfest, all of us, we've learned to do that with the other, you know, I, uh, European, you know, centers of our U S American identity. I think we still need to do that when it comes to Hispanic, the Hispanic part of the American, we're still working towards that. And I hope that, you know, a book like this might make you think of the Americas on a larger scale. As opposed to thinking, oh, that's what's happening over there. I'm like, no, no. Philosophically, creatively, we're all part of a similar conversation. Um, and that holds true with our history, our languages. I mean, again, Spanish and Portuguese, these are European languages, you know, just like English and French are. And we have to, you know, be more comfortable with that idea of it not being something different. It's not different. It's part of a greater whole. Like the existentialists and their affirmation of life, uh, what an incredible uh, and en encouraging and hopeful way to end. Uh, Dr. Merlot, thank you so much. PJ, thank you so much. This has been entirely too much fun. <laughs> <laughs>